Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Lori Ferguson Wilbert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. You asked me before we got on why I wanted to have you on the show with your book, A Curious Faith. And I just played you the intro of the, of the podcast rather than trying to answer it. I just said, listen to this. This is what everybody hears at the beginning of an episode. And the the sort of alignment with the mission statement of You Have Permission and the mission statement of your book is kind of unmistakable. I think specifically about the, everybody who's asked these questions, and then sometimes we're given bad answers to those questions. One thing that I think your book also adds to that discussion is we're actually encouraged not to ask them. So even before we can get bad answers, we might not even be allowed to ask those questions. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of the central argument you're making with the book is curiosity is good. Curiosity can even be godly yeah. and can facilitate faith. Am I am I getting that right? You are. Yeah. I say in the book that the Bible is a permission slip to ask questions. I think too often we think of the Bible as this sort of list of do's and don'ts. And I find it really interesting that some of the first interactions that we see between God and man and woman is questions. And yeah. I think we should pay attention to that. 
So people don't need me to tell them they have permission that the Bible will tell them. <laughs> well, I think we need as many people as we can. All, all hands on deck. Yeah. yeah. Especially these days. Yeah. So your name is Lori, but it's spelled lore. And yeah. you, you told me, cause I, I always check that before, you know, especially with interesting spellings or interesting names, like I'm getting it right. And you said, oh, it's my hippie parents. And in the book, you, you kind of, by your late twenties, you're still pretty much embracing at least a hippie aesthetic with dreadlocks, flowy fabric pants, uh, stuff like that. Is that how you were introduced to Christianity? Were, were they Christian hippies? Did you come later? What's the basic background there? I say hippie. Um, really, what I mean is my dad is very anti-government, very anti-authority, buck mm. the system. And that showed up. I mean, from a young age, we were terrified of the government. None of us had social security numbers. Oh. Public school was bad. Paying taxes was, you know, anathema. So those that's the kind of when I talk about a, a hippie, what I mean is more countercultural. And yeah. so I mean that because my my name was actually Sarah Elizabeth for three days. And as as my parents were leaving the hospital, my dad saw a poster that saw that it was one of the top names for that year. And he kind of declared, no daughter of mine will. I love that, actually. <laughs> um, and so they gave me kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum, a name that no one could pronounce. Well, there's no better way to stick it to the Social Security yeah. Administration than uh, a, a weird, a weirdly spelled name. Yeah. But they did raise you Christian, essentially. I would say I had no real understanding of Jesus, the cross, grace, especially. If there was an element of Christianity, it was more just sort of like anti-mainstream than it was pro anything else, yeah. if that makes sense. In 2023, after six, seven years of yeah. the new sort of Trump branded Republican Party, that makes perfect sense to me. I can yeah. maybe your dad was sort of ahead of his time. Far ahead of his time in that he feels like he's found his tribe over the past seven, eight years. So, yeah, the the therapist in me is happy for him. And then the uh, the, the cultural critic in me is, is saddened. Uh, I, I think I'm not there yet. I think I'm only just sad. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I'm curious, you know, if that kind of anti-system approach, you know, that, that would seem like the kind of thing that would allow for or mm. even encourage questioning, you know, like question authority. For instance, I grew up on punk rock and question authority was like one of our big tag taglines, catchphrases. Do you think you got the bug that early? I've always been a really curious person. Um, that's always been, I think, a, an important part maybe of my personality. It was interesting growing up in this culture where it was so anti-authority, anti-establishment, because in our home, dad's word was law. Mm. So there was no questioning authority and that. Not his, you could question the government's authority, but not your dad's authority. Yeah. When I was 20, I went to the social security office and got a, a number because I wanted to have a driver's license and I wanted to go to college and I wanted to get a job. And as I was leaving, he said, have fun selling your soul to the devil. And that's kind of the authority mindset in my mind is just sort of any kind of rejection of these ideas is 
anathema. You're you're dead to me in a way. And he would he would not say you're dead to me, but that was the the mindset. So he could question anything he wanted and does, but we could not. And so I wouldn't say my curiosity was cultivated in that sense. Yeah. My mother is an incredibly creative person and my parents are divorced now. I think she did her best in that environment to cultivate curiosity in in each of us. But yeah, my dad has a very strong presence and had a very strong presence in our home in that, in that sense. So then when did you come to a more, you know, substantial Christian faith? I think a lot of people have like a, you know, a day and an hour where they kind of quote, ask Jesus. A lot of people do. I don't. But yeah, a lot of people I don't. Do. I do not have that sort of day in an hour. My dad was um, obsessed with living off the land, and so we moved about seven hours from my hometown when I was eighteen, right on the cusp of Y two K. Was that part of the timing? He thought the world was gonna end, and the world did not end. And three months later, my younger brother was killed in a in an accident. And that kind of ended the world for us. Right. Uh, wow. I mean, just the loss of a family member, but also the loss of a child for my parents was just, that was a catastrophe. They couldn't come back from. Yeah. But a friend, a local friend um, invited me to church. And what I found there was what, what appeared like a stable family to me. People who weren't, you know, obsessed with the end times or obsessed with being anti-government or living off the land. It was similar in the sense of like, my word is the true word kind of way of being. And so really there was no room for questions there either. Um, It was just kind of, this is what Christianity is. This is what faith is. And I think I was so desperate for stability and I was so desperate for love, really. I just lived in that system and embraced it and tried my best to go along with the the system as it was. But ultimately, I mean, it just doesn't, you know, we can try and fake it until we make it, but that just doesn't work for any of us. And, and it didn't work for me. And I, I walked away from it all at 29. And then I heard the actual gospel. But at that point, I think I was begun, beginning to like, realize that faith is not having all the answers to something. Faith is is saying, I don't have all the answers to something and I don't know what the end is or any of those things. And I'm going to still walk for it anyway. And that is has been an incredibly comforting way for me to live and an incredibly challenging way to live within Christian culture, because that's just not, frankly, not accepted in a lot of Christian environments. You say that at 29, then you heard the actual gospel. So Mm -hmm. in your late teens and and earlier 20s where you were in this, was it a fundamentalist sort of a community or what's the word for it? Yeah, I would call it fundamentalist now. Um, At the time, I mean, they described themselves as non-denominational, charismatic, but very fundamentalist in the sense of like purity culture is a given everyone's yeah. homeschooling. If you send your kids to public school there, you're, you know, sending them to the devil. It's you're... kind of a diet version of your dad in that oh, it sense. Was, it was absolutely sort of like the echo. I That's kind of how I think of it now. It's uh-huh. like the echo without maybe the, the extremes. Yeah. 
maybe without the ideology, it was just kind of like packaged theologically instead of politically. Interesting. And so, yeah, that's, I see that now. I didn't have, I couldn't see that then. Oh, of course not. No. And so then when you say the actual gospel, because, you know, most, the types of fundamentalism that I am more familiar with, which are not charismatic, to be clear, they're pretty big on, you know, the blood of Jesus washing away sin. So that's not, they didn't do that or, or that's not what you mean by actual gospel. Yeah, that's not what I mean by the actual gospel. Mm, What I mean by actual gospel is like that, A, God is infinitely good and that he loves us and that God's love for us is like inexplicable at times. Grace, just no understanding of grace whatsoever. Only understood that I had to somehow clean myself up. Um, Basically that, that God takes part in our sanctification or becoming holier, becoming better, becoming more like Jesus. The way that I think of it now is it was, it was like a genie Christianity. It was like, do good things, rub the genie, you'll get what you want. Meanwhile, my life was, I mean, it was just in pieces around me. And so I kept thinking, I'm tying myself in a pretzel to get God to pay attention to me not paying attention to me. I couldn't accept that he was good. I, I got to the point where I was like, he's not good. If he's good, he's not good to me. And if he's yeah. not good to me, I can't believe in a God that's not good to me. And therefore the only place to go from there was God doesn't exist. That's so interesting. So mm-hmm. prosperity gospel is the most obvious version of this kind of a thing, but it's the idea that like, basically the theological claim is that there is a grand equation And if we put our inputs right, then we will get the outputs we want. God is not sort of wild. God's not Aslan from C.S. Lewis. He's wild and dangerous, but he's good. God is actually quite predictable. And if you do X, God will do Y. Yeah, it's combination Christianity. It's it's trying to break the safe to get to God's goodness. Yeah, it's like, so the people who are doing the really deep, Bible study or whatever, they are basically like the person with their ear up against the safe, turning the the knob until they can hear the click of like, okay, write that down. 26, going back, <laughs> listening, you know, they like basically trying to crack the code. And there are a lot of these Bible code type books too, that are very explicit about yeah. that, which is interesting. Maybe there could have been people in that environment who didn't absorb that lesson. Right. But I think with my background in the just a lot of like talk about end times, a lot of talk about numbers and things like that. That is like, everything was kind of an equation in my mind. And then what I learned was that God is not an equation and faith is not an equation. And there's absolutely nothing predictable about our lives and life in God. Well, first you learned that the equation didn't hold up. And so you left altogether, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, I I like the clarity of your description there because the fact that it was a formula, that it was a combination to the safe, well, you can try it and then it doesn't work. And the community will have all kinds of ways of explaining why it's not working, but those explanations will invariably keep the, the formula intact and they will say, well, it must be something on your end. And then you can look at yourself and if you have enough self-confidence and clarity, you can go, no, I I'm, I'm holding up my end. This is God must not be there because it's either in those communities, it's either this formula or nothing. 
And that's another way that they can kind of bolster that view is by making the alternative be godlessness yeah, rather than other forms of Christianity or something like that. There was a kind of a wrecking ball that came at my life in my 20s. And the answer from my community in that time was, you got to pray more, you got to fast more, you got to speak in tongues more, you got to there must be something you're not doing. Um, And I, again, I don't know if that was ever explicit. I think it was in some ways explicit, but, but it is definitely the way that I absorbed it for better, for worse. I think that was just, you know, we bring our stories with us into whatever environment we come into. and, And I think sometimes we think we're communicating something one way, but we're not, realizing that someone coming in with a totally different story is going to absorb it in a different way. And so we just need to be really careful about the assumptions we make in really every environment of our lives. Yeah. Good luck getting people yeah. to uh, <laughs> listen to that on mass. Of course, I agree. One of the things I like that you're getting at in the book is the things that can get in the way of our curiosity. You said you're a naturally curious person. And so I think you, you're you kind of a, a well-positioned case study for the types of things that have dampened that curiosity. Mm-hmm. And in your case, therefore, kind of forced you to not be who you are, who God made you to be, right? And I, I, I see myself very much in that description as well of being naturally curious. You list out a few things. I'd love to kind of talk through each of them and, and maybe have you give an example of the ways in which this can dampen curiosity. And the first mm-hmm. one you mentioned is technology. So what do you mean that technology can can get in the way of our curiosity? When I think about technology in particular, I think about wonder. And so often when we we wonder about something, and by wonder, I mean we have curi- a curiosity about something, we can just look it up, you know, very quickly. We can look up the answer yeah. instead of being coming in a state of wonder and simply just maybe even thinking our way to some kind of answer or thinking through all the possibilities of an answer before we run to the answer. So I think that can be one way that technology dampens our curiosity. There's a scene from this movie that my wife and I watched years ago while we're young. It's from 2014. Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts are playing these like Gen X couple, this Gen X couple who befriends a millennial couple, Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried, who they think are so cool and they're all living in New York. And the the thing that we always think about and quote back to each other is Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts are like, they're asking some question like, oh, let's look it up. And then Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried are like, no, let's just not know. Like they're, they're like, so they're beyond that impulse. They're beyond that impulse to like look everything up and and they think it's cooler to just not know it. Like as if they could go back to like a pre internet time. And it's, I think the reason, you know, it's a pretty good joke, but I think the reason that it comes up so often is that our lives are so saturated with that ability to look anything up at any time, basically. Yeah. And also look at anything up at any time and get any answer. I mean, if I want the answer to something to be this, right. I can find someone saying the answer to this is this. And if I want the answer to be something else, which is why we have, I think, you know, the lines between, I saw a graph recently that said, you know, 30 years ago, the mix of 
of red and blue politics was was very i mean it was just everywhere i mean you had married couples yeah like yeah everyone was part of the community and now that divide has has there's a massive gap between the two and i think that's you know evidence of the fact that if i want to find someone saying that the election was stolen i can find that if i want to find someone saying the election wasn't stolen i can find that and yeah i know where i stand on that i know what what I believe to be true. Yeah. But if you want to believe something bad enough, you can find an answer to anything in it. And it really, it takes curiosity out of the equation. Um, Isn't there a case where technology though can aid our curiosity? Like I think about the sort of blunt fact of pluralism mm -hmm. and then my ability to go to something like Wikipedia or, you know, various streaming services that have all these different, you know, like I think about a show like Rami, on Hulu, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Egyptian immigrant, Muslim yeah. American, you know, dramedy. And that is certainly made possible by technology, um, mm -hmm. as well as anything I might find online about the experience of, of Muslim Americans or whatever. Um, I guess you would say American Muslims because Muslims, not an ethnicity, yeah. you know, like I, so in that sense, we can use that tool but then mm -hmm. there's a way in which the tool, and I think we're we're learning all you know a lot these days, kind of in real time, yeah. about what a lot of these platforms and algorithms are have done to damage individual lives and and social fabric. Yeah. But that one's interesting because it it does seem like a, a two way street. Everything everything in the world has you know a beautiful side and a shadow side. Nothing is is all one thing or the other. I mean, yeah. pure evil is, but even you know. Humans who do pure evil are still somehow made beautiful in the yeah. image of God. And that's, you know, I think technology has has like in some ways taken the the nuance out of a lot of things. And we're just not able to exist in gray spaces very well. We're not able to exist in complexity very well, which is part of curiosity. And that's just an area where, you know, we have to be self-aware as we use technology, we just have to realize this is a tool and I've got to use it. It can't use me. Unfortunately, it's really hard to stay self-aware once you begin to be used by it. Yeah. Is your dad kind of anti the social media apps and all that stuff? Oh, for sure. I mean, he's anti. Um, the only thing he's pro <laughs> technology in is um, where he gets his conspiracies from. Right. The, the particular websites and whatnot that he likes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, that but that skepticism of money and power, right? Because that's, you know, tech has been where the most money and power has been over the last decade mm -hmm. or, or so. And maybe that's shifting a bit now, but maybe you got a little bit of that uh, healthy skepticism there from, from oh, your dad. I think in a lot of ways, I'm very much like my dad, um, just the way that I'm wired. I have a lot of skepticism. I have been riddled with doubt my whole life. I don't pretend to not resemble him in that way. Yeah. I just am very aware of the dark space that that can take me. And so I'm very careful to put myself sort of in places where I have a, a little bit more, I don't like using the word accountability, but a little bit more like boundaries yeah. around things because I just know. I'm probably like an addict in that way. Like I'm, I would be too, too drawn to that way yeah. of being. 
Well, that's kind of a good bridge to the second one that you list out as something that gets in the way of curiosity, which is fear of the unknown. And and the Mm. reason I say that it's a bridge is that I think that there's some good evidence for this. And it makes sense to me psychologically that the conspiracy theorist mindset and a lot of the conservative religious mindset, there's quite a bit of overlap. And the way that I would, the way that some psychologists have described it is what they call magical thinking. I kind of like the the term secret knowledge, like Mm. secret or special knowledge. And Mm. conspiracy theories are very, very effective at sort of reducing cognitive dissonance around the unknown, reducing that fear or, or discomfort and going, no, 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 you know it, you know it, it's this, it's the, this shadow cabal of whatever. And if other people just saw the signs, like they would see it too. And now you don't need to worry. I mean, you might worry about sort of what that cabal of powerful people will do to you, but you don't need to worry about not having the answer anymore. And so that fear of the unknown, I apologize if I'm answering the the prompt for you, but that's how I see uh, fear of the unknown can really stifle true curiosity because the anxiety is so strong that we have to find an answer as quickly as possible. And we will fall for things that don't have very much evidence. We, we will become essentially gullible and anybody's angel story that they bring in or anybody's prophecy that they share with us, like we can just be so desperate in an understandable in a very human way for order. And so mm-hmm. we will latch on to things that will then ultimately let us down, of course, because they're not grounded in reality. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I I think too, a fear of the unknown coupled with, with also just a fear of the known in some ways, a fear of the people around us and, and what they will think if we question something or what they will do if we opt out of a way that they think is right. And I think we see this on the left and the right everywhere. Oh, I think yeah. it's everywhere. It's just in the water that we're drinking in. Our work is to just become cognizant of it and to to just figure out how we're wired and to as as best as we can to to walk into life, just cognizant of it. I like how you're calling that the fear of the known. Like we we also know how our community will react if we do certain things. Yeah. I continually find myself thinking about this idea that I believe is from James K.A. Smith, the philosopher at Calvin College, that we are in like the age of contestability, at least in, in sort of white collar educated society. Basically, like the way you show today that you are educated, hip, in, you know, even virtuous or whatever, is that you can sort of do this performative questioning not, it's not a true curiosity like you're talking about. It's more like a, well, let me, let's dismantle those terms. Yes. And what you- My husband and I were just talking about this yesterday. Okay. Well, so just to connect to what you were saying that I want to hear from you, like if I know that what's expected of me is to be able to contest things, Mm -hmm. uh, always on behalf of some marginalized group, if I'm on the left, right? I I don't want to contest things on behalf of, power or money or capital, right? That's the wrong kind of contesting, but I can contest on behalf of the the marginalized. Then 
I'm expected to contest. And if I don't contest, I know what will happen. It's fear of the known. But then we get into an impossible situation where everyone is contesting each other all the time. There's not a shared, the shared narratives, the shared values, the shared whatever, they sink to so such a small set because there's so few things that cannot be contested. That's why curiosity is so important. Like true mm. curiosity is so, so important and practicing what just practicing. I don't know. I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know how to solve this problem. I've been doing a lot of thinking. One of the projects I'm working on right now has me doing a lot of thinking and work around land and who owns land and indigenous stories and things like that. And I'm just like, I mean, I don't know what the answer is to this. I don't know. I can't make peace with the things I'm reading and the things I'm learning. I cannot come to a place of like, this is the way forward. Um, It's too messy. It's too messy. It's too messy. And it's not a simple answer. And I don't think there's a simple answer to, you know, anything. I'm not saying that to sort of virtue signal my like. Right contestability. I'm saying I, d- I, d- I just think things are more complex. I was just listening to Krista Tippett's On Being the other day, and she was interviewing a journalist. Her name was Amanda Ripley, and she just wrote a book called High Conflict. And she was talking about practicing curiosity as a journalist. And so often journalists enter into a situation where they're asking questions to sort of lead to the argument that they came in wanting to make. Right. And, um, and she's just being very self-aware and saying, Hey, this is like a journalistic strategy. It's everywhere. And it's not, she's not going to go so far as to say that, you know, it's a lack of integrity, but she was saying the more that we do that, the more that we create division instead and more that we create what she calls high conflict. And in order to change this, she has learned as a journalist to, cultivate real curiosity toward the person she's interviewing, real wonder. I think it's a practice of humility to ask a question totally, and, and really genuinely not know the answer. And even if the answer is what you expect to still somehow hear it charitably and be willing to maybe move your own self a little bit closer to a different view in that asking. I love it. It makes sense to me that coming out of these strict communities and, and finding some freedom in curiosity that you would also f- apply that lens to sort of the sociocultural, sociopolitical moment because it the shoe fits, you know? <laughs> I think that some of my more leftist friends have a hard time thinking that the following two things can be true. On the one hand, there is only one political party that has a major chunk of it actively trying to dismantle democracy for their own benefit. That's true. And it's also true that people on both sides of that spectrum are taking part in a very similar psychological phenomenon of squelching curiosity, of tribalism, of it might be true that your tribe at the moment is doing a lot less harm. I think that is true. If I have a tribe, my tribe is the left tribe, but I'm still not satisfied with living that way because 
that can change. First of all, I, you know, I think that it might be a while. It, it probably will be a while till the balance of shit, <laughs> you know, actually yeah. tips over, but, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be uh, culpable when it does, or if it does. And anyway, what a shitty way to live. I don't just want a tribal orthodoxy handed down to me. I fucking grew up that way and yeah. I'm done with it. That yeah. is what I have had to leave behind. That's why this podcast exists. Yeah. There's also a no man's land on the other end, which a lot of podcasts explore and live in where it's like, well, the so-called expert of the week will bring him or her in this week and give people some new idea that maybe might make them happy for a few weeks. And that to me is like the information version of fad dieting or something mm-hmm. like what yeah. it's not an obvious answer to how we solve this, but it it's something to do with rigor. But I think you're right that it starts with curiosity and then we get to something like rigor, careful yeah. thinking, research, et cetera. But if we squelch that curiosity, we'll never get there. And your next item on this list is cultural taboos. So that's another kind of a good bridge. Tell us what you mean by cultural taboos getting in the way of curiosity. Well, I think we kind of hit on it a minute ago when we were talking about just environments where if you don't question certain things, if you're a part of this environment, you question these things. If you're part of this environment, you question these things. And the same goes for Christians across the you know, the aisle, there's just certain environments where you don't question God's goodness, where you don't question God's love, where you don't question mission, where you don't question the kingdom of God, like all of these things. Why can't we question these things? Again, it takes, it takes humility to say, you know, the church is saying this and culture is saying this. I genuinely don't know. And so I'm going to explore with curiosity. I'm going to explore this and I'm going to explore not with the plan to end up either where I started or on the other side. I'm going to explore with an intention to learn whatever it is there is to learn. When I say that's a humble way to go, it's also it can be like a humiliating way to go because we're going to be surprised at what we learn. Over here in You Have Permission Land, we are getting very excited about this coming Saturday, March 25th, hosting our first ever in-person event, a little mini conference, the inaugural mini conference Um, It's sold out, so there are no more tickets available for the in-person event, but patrons of this show can stream it live on Saturday, the 25th, and I believe there will be a way for patrons to watch the replay of that stream as well. And some of the events will be, probably most of them will be eventually broadcast, but some of those will only be broadcast on the patron feed. So if you've got a little bit of FOMO, Maybe it was too expensive to get out here to Seattle. I understand. But now would be a good time to join the Patreon uh, community, the Patreon uh, campaign, if you've been thinking about that, so that you can take part in this event. Um, It's a really fun lineup. All friends of the podcast. We've got the entire quote unquote big five, Trip, Myron, Sarah, and Sari. We've got Tom Ord, Sarah Billups, and we've got the Generation Gap Culture Hour crew 
With us as well, Josh and Tony Jones and Kristen Tideman will be leading one of the panels. It's just going to be such a fun crew and such a fun day. I'm, I'm truly looking forward to it. Similar to the way I'm looking forward to my 40th birthday party. Let's put it that way. I'm like highly anticipating how this thing's going to go. So if you would like to join the Patreon community, you also get two exclusive episodes per month and access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That's patreon.com slash Dan Coke. And okay, back to my conversation with Lori. So let's get into some of these questions. The way that you've organized the book is around three types of questions. Questions that God asks us, the questions that we ask God, and questions that we wish someone else would ask us. Yeah. I thought maybe you could pick one or two from each category that you particularly like, and, and we can talk through them. So which one should we talk about for the questions that God asks? You, meant, you mentioned earlier Genesis and how it sort of starts with all these, you know, there's so many questions God's asking mm-hmm. sort of from the very beginning of the narrative. I think that's pretty intriguing. One of the first things God asks is, where are you to Adam and Eve? And and I just think so often, like we were talking about earlier, we don't, maybe we've located ourselves properly, but we haven't located the people around us properly. And so we're speaking with a bunch of assumptions. And I just think location is so important and understanding where we are, where we come from, who our people are, if we can, um, or who our people aren't or what we've lost by not knowing who our people are. Like all of those things are just so, they're important things to think about. And God asking that question and that question being in the Bible says, oh, God actually cares about that. Like he is not ignorant to the complexities of our our location and our geographic location, our social location, our Christian location, all of those things, genealogical all those things are just that they're important to God. And that I think in a lot of environments, I think particularly more on the right or more conservative Christian environments where like personal salvation is so important. We can like individualize everything. It's like, well, it doesn't matter where you came from. What matters is where you're going from here. And I'm just like, well, it, it does matter where we came from and it does matter where we are and God cares about it. And we should, we should care about it too. Um, we get to care about it. Like we have permission to care about it from God. He doesn't just care about our future. He cares about our past. This might be a stretch of where are you? It might be closer to like, who who are you or something like that. But even in the way you're talking about your dad mm-hmm. and how, you know, you're like, I don't deny that I am very much like him. Mm-hmm. I, I just uh, spent time with a buddy for his 40th birthday and uh, hung out with his dad. And I just saw so many of these mannerisms and whatnot. And, you know, that's, that's a superficial thing, but there's going to be habits of mind. There's going to be, you know, proclivities, interests, these things that get passed down through genetics and the way that we are raised in our families. There can be a naive disembodied view of the human person that's like, well, it's really just like my soul and God. And I happen to have this mortal coil, but I'll shed it. It's not that important. But, you know, the way that I increasingly think of it as I learn more about our physiology, our neurology, all the ways in which everything about us is so fundamentally connected to our bodies that like you, you you ignore that at your own peril, essentially. And you will just not understand yourself if you take that approach. 
Bessel van der Kolk has done so much work around just like trauma being carried in our bodies. The book, My Grandmother's Hand talks about just like the trauma that is carried in black bodies. And Mm -hmm. we can't ignore that. We cannot, we will do ourselves a a disservice and we'll do others a disservice if we, if we don't locate ourselves properly. Yeah. I love that. Should we pick another one from the questions God asks? I like, I like this idea. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I think another one I really, it kind of surprised me was when God asked Moses, who is standing before the burning bush, God asks him, what's in your hand? And it really struck me in that passage as I was going through, like he's holding a staff, you know, and we, we have these, you know, sort of Sunday school pictures of Moses holding a staff as he gets the 10 commandments or holding Charlton a staff. Charlton Heston he, is the image. Yeah, Charlton That's Heston. what I have in my mind. Yeah. Right. Like all these pictures of, of Moses always has the staff in his hand, but the staff was in his hand because so much shit had gone wrong in his life. I mean, why is he shepherding sheep? Because, well, to begin with, he was taken away from his parents at a very young age. He hmm. was raised in a, in a palace, but he was not a prince. And then he tried to be with his people and ended up murdering someone. And so there's just like this domino story that has happened in Moses's life that has been like, man, just one thing after another has not gone the way that we would think of as well. And yet that staff is the thing that's in Moses's hand that proves God's goodness and power again and again and again uh, through the Exodus story. And so when God asks that question, I think, I think there's an element in which God is saying like, Hey, this thing that you despise is going to be a tool maybe of, of good power, not bad power, like justice pursuing power for you. And I, I find that really beautiful because I'm carrying a whole lot of things in my life that I'm like, wow, I did not, not the way I planned for this to go. And yet I do see Paul talks about like the foolish things of the world end up being in some ways tools in my hand. So I'm, that was a surprising question for me. I really love that one. I think that what what's coming out for me is that if we smother our curiosity, then we are in a very literal sense cutting ourselves off from ourselves. Yeah, we're smothering ourselves. Right. Yeah. And sort of the the story we carry bodily, the story we carry genetically uh yeah. through the story, you know, in terms of our upbringing, sort of values and norms and, and, you know, in, in cognitive therapy, you know, we, we call core beliefs, these Mm -hmm. deep assumptions about ourselves and the world that sometimes we need to pull them out and look at them and challenge them because they're leading to suffering. And you have to be curious. I mean, in, in one sense, like all the work that I do with clients as a therapist is foundationally built upon curiosity yeah. There are other forms of therapy maybe that are not, that don't do that, but I basically do sort of cognitive based therapy and, and there's a, a necessity. You have to have enough, you have to be, at least be willing to engage your curiosity or at least the parts of your brain that your curiosity would naturally engage in order yeah. to do that work. Um, and if you're, if you're not willing or able or too scared to look, well, your progress is going to be really limited. Yeah, I think even in other forms of of therapy, I'm thinking um, I I witnessed a violent event 
several years ago and really, really struggled to move through it in some ways. And so I went through EMDR Yeah, and even in that process, not cognitive behavioral counseling, but there was still an element in which I had to describe the event very precisely down to like colors and the weather and these kinds of things. And so I had to, in a sense, put my body back in that place where I witnessed this, this shooting and, and experience it with, instead of this zeroed in experience of like seeing like two men and some guns, I had to experience the whole thing Mm. again. Uh, And that took curiosity, you know, what was the weather that day? You know, it was December 8th, but what was the weather? I know the car was green, but was it teal or was it forest green? You know, those kinds of things. And so, so I think even in other forms of, of therapy, I just think curiosity is kindness because it leads to, it leads to healing. I don't think there's any, I can't think of a scenario in which curiosity doesn't lead to eventual healing. And I think we've got tropes like, you know, curiosity killed the cat in our minds, or we've got, you know, more theological Augustine views on curiosity being a vice. And I'm just like, well, I just, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, there are battle lines around these ways of thinking and and within Christianity, you've got plenty of saints and, and writers and biblical writers that seem very pro curiosity. You've got some that seem quite anti curiosity. And then ultimately the Bible, in my view, does not agree with itself. It's, it's multivocal. It's not univocal. And so those who believe it's univocal will pick one of those and say, well, this one they won't yeah. admit this, but they will pick the one that they find more plausible or their community finds more plausible. And then that one will win out over the other voices in the text and they'll baptize it in God's name, of course. And now we know how that goes. Well, I just think if we find, like, if your listeners find that feeling coming up in them right now, like yeah. that the Bible is this or the other, that is the first sign that we are not being curious um, because we've kind of planted our flag in this place. And I'm not saying that there is no, I'm not saying there's no absolute truth. I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. there are not very true irrevocable things about God. That is not what I'm saying, but I am saying, I don't know what they fully are. I'm not omnipotent. I'm not omniscient. And so anytime I kind of take the attitude that's like, well, I know the answer to this, or I I have landed here and this is where I am and I'm never moving. It's kind of a death to our soul. Yeah. How about the questions we ask of God? Hmm. So many of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the, where can I go chapter, and that's taken from Psalm 139. It's after David has committed some pretty grievous sin and I think this passage gets co-opted, you know, for church nurseries, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made, made in secret places and all those kinds of things. And then it goes to where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? And I just think that wasn't a, that wasn't a nursery school rhyme. That was David saying like, (laughs) okay, I'm, I'm cooked. I'm almost like on on the run from the law. Like, where can I go? Yeah. To hide from your justice, I have, like, yeah. I am screwed here. Yeah, it is not yeah. a uh, 
what an old pastor of mine used to call a coffee cup verse. Um, (laughs) I think I really appreciate that because I think that there was this belief growing up that we somehow could control the outcome. If this, then that we, you know, we, we talked about this before. Yeah. Like about that church. Yeah. Yeah. The equations and those kinds of things. There was this belief that like, if we hid, we wouldn't be found. (laughs) Um, And yet I your dad, you mean? Yeah. Off grid, you know, sort of. Yeah. 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 Wow. And at the same time, like I had a go bag packed under my bed because I was afraid the feds were going to come and take us away. And so there was this belief that we couldn't be found. And yet at the same time, we were terrified of being found. And so this idea of being seen by God is, um, it can be like kind of a terrifying feeling to be seen by the God of the universe. And I think as I was going through that chapter, I just thought, what if it's like incredibly comforting to not be able to go anywhere and hide from God? What if it's incredibly comforting to be seen at all times, to be known at all times and not by some furious Old Testament God who just wants to crush us, but by a gentle shepherd? What if I can't flee from that presence? What if no matter how far the one runs Jesus is is coming after that one how much more beautiful is that to be seen by that god but i would say that's like an ongoing work for me i tend i'm a pretty introverted person i can i can want to hermit myself and and hide and to believe that i'm hiding even from god himself in some ways so just sitting with that truth like i'm i'm here and god is with me and he's not going to chase me down as much as he's going to not let go of me. And that's really comforting to me. I'm drawing a connection between that and what we talked about earlier. It's like on both your, the less healthy version you got in the fundamentalist church and the more healthy version you got eventually, God's omnipresence is not, there's no difference The difference is these other beliefs about how God works in the world. So in a sense, where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere in unhealthy Christianity, for lack of a better sort of, you know, term, and in healthy Christianity. Like that part doesn't change. What actually changes is what we think God's up to. Yes. When God is always with us, right? Yeah. What changes is God's name in a sense, like his name and his hmm. character. One is, you know, this wrathful God who's chasing us down to whip us into shape. And the other is like this loving shepherd who who wants to be with us. How about questions we wish somebody would ask us? As a therapist, mm-hmm. I love I love yeah. that kind of topic. Getting into the nitty gritty of the interpersonal. I don't think I'll ever forget this, um, was the woman, I hate, you know, the, the, the language that the Bible uses is caught in the act of adultery, but I think we know enough about, uh, ancient Near East times and things like that, that this was not a woman who was probably caught in the act of adultery for her own pleasure. This was probably a woman who was being used for the pleasure of a man. Mm. And then she was being used for the pleasure of the Pharisees who wanted to catch Jesus and, um, yeah. A, a pawn in their game. Yep. Yeah, a pawn in their game. And so this is just a woman who's been condemned, really, yeah. to be used by, I think, wicked men. And, you know, we often, 
there there are a couple lines from that narrative that we hear a lot in the church and and one of them is let him without sin cast the first stone and the other is go and sin no more there's another thing that Jesus says in that passage that we don't often think about and he says to the woman after the pharisees have left he stands up and he says does no one condemn you and i think that's so powerful i just think man like it matters not at all for us to go and sin no more unless we're doing that in the freedom of knowing that we are not condemned going and sinning no more is just moralism i imagine jesus with her saying i'm not condemning you they're gone they're not condemning you the only one in this scenario who could possibly condemn you is yourself and you don't need to condemn yourself. So who condemns you? Go. You're free. You're free. I love that. I could sit with that for, I did sit with that for a long time. Like I could sit longer there because man, condemnation can just for so many of us in the church and even outside the church can be this sort of battery that keeps us performing, can be the battery that keeps us, that even keeps us in the church and um, just a sense of if I if I do something different or if I disappoint someone or I'm caught, I'm caught between warring factions or whatever. But if we can get out from underneath that condemnation, I just think, man, there's almost like nothing we can do if we can get out from underneath the condemnation. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is like carte blanche, do whatever you want. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying like Jesus is not condemning us. And who cares if the Pharisees are condemning you? Like, they just want to use you. So don't condemn yourself. Who cares if Fox News or (laughs) your preferred, you know, John Oliver is condemning you? They just want to use you for their own good. They do. I mean, it's literally true. They do. Oh, people don't like when I pick on John Oliver. He's kind of a sacred cow, but he um he's he's very tribal in a lot of his language and and whatnot. <laughs> he is cunning and and knows how to goose up all our feelings into a you know, the the big thing there is us versus them. I can't how could they possibly do this? That's the yes. that's the question that the partisans will always want yes. you to be asking because if you're asking that question, then it is obvious that you're right. And then you will be flooded with yeah. dopamine and serotonin or whatever it is. That's why I loved that on being, I can't wait to get my hands on on her book, Amanda Ripley's book. Yeah. It was a really brilliant interview and about not othering people. It was kind of, I, I felt that it was jarring to go from the Pharisees to news pundits, yeah. <laughs> but they are the Pharisees of our time, I think. Like. There are certainly still religious leaders, but religious leaders are not that powerful anymore. <laughs> well, know? I think some of them in the media. Well, the ones who have a media presence. Yes. But it's because of their media presence. It's not yeah. by virtue of their spiritual leadership no. that they're powerful. Right. The people with power right now at a sociocultural level. Yeah. You know, in terms of, you know, messaging. Right. Because the Pharisees were not the government either. They weren't the ones that actually controlled the army. But they had a lot of they had cultural power yeah. over the the you know the first century Jewish population, and now we have pundits, commentators. Yeah. Uh, th- th- those folks have a lot of power. Yeah, Lori, what a great conversation! <laughs> 
Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having this conversation. May we develop curiosity as a spiritual habit. Hmm. Another one of your phrases. So the book is called A Curious Faith. The questions God asks, we ask, and we wish someone would ask us by Lori Ferguson Wilbert. It's out on Brazos Press. And uh, any any other links should should we put in the show notes besides the book? I mean, you can put my, my social links there. I'm not find myself less enthralled with social media these days. I write regularly at lauriwilbert.com. Great. We'll put we'll put all those links, even if people are getting less of you on their various power controlled <laughs> algorithm algorithmic platforms. Yeah, uh, yeah. We can we can make those platforms a little better by following you. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. What a great chat. Thank you. Thank you.